Welcome back to the Equity Matters Podcast. This is your host, Addis JB3. Happy New Year, y'all. It is 2022, which is hopefully not the same as 2021 or 2020 version 2. Hopefully we are making our way to the other side of this global pandemic that has uprooted so many things that we've gotten used to. And so... Before I get too far into today's episode, I want to tell y'all that I did get sick with the Omarion Omicron variant. And you go through a lot of emotions in social isolation. I just want to point that out. And you go through even more in quarantine. And so coming up on the holiday season, my child was exposed at school and quickly thereafter, I felt different. My wife felt different. And we tried our best to make sure that our other son did not get exposed as well. And we were successful. And so to have four people in a home and one of them survive, um, it was almost like Robert Neville from I Am Legend. If you get the reference, you get the reference. And so I'm just grateful today, one, for being vaccinated and two, for the symptoms, for the most part, being gone. I do still have a lingering cough that comes and goes that you just don't understand why you're coughing. It's just unexpected and uncomfortable. But aside from that, I'm doing fine. Family's doing fine. So we are on the upswing of things. Today's episode is special, right? When I started thinking about what I wanted to do in 2022, I I really got specific with who I reached out to, what type of episodes I wanted to have, and when I wanted to post them. And so it's the top of the year. People are going through the new year, new me phase, and people want to be radical, right? People want to start doing things differently or unlearning many of the things that they've learned in various institutions. And what better person to introduce that conversation than the dope black social worker, Kim Young. And if you're not following Kim on social media, Instagram in particular, I just want to tell you that you're missing out because not only is she live up to the name dope black social worker, the content that she posts, the call to action that she puts out, all of those things completely relevant, especially today. If we want to be better social workers, better activists, better advocates, or just better people in general, Kim Young is one of the people that you want to follow. And so without me giving away too much, I am excited to introduce you all to Kim Young. Kim, let folks know a little bit about yourself, where you're from, where you're representing, and we'll kick it from there. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here with you, to have this conversation indeed. Home is wherever the people are, right? Um, No, right now I physically call home um, Richmond, Virginia. So I am in Virginia, been here going on 10 years. I'm originally from San Diego, California and attended undergrad in the Bay Area, California and then came on out here to the East Coast um, for grad school and just stayed. Yeah, you're down by uh, my homie Trey. He's in yes. he's in the in the country somewhere, Carolina County is all I know. Oh yeah, that's country, country, no street lights and sidewalks, all that. Yeah, that's what he liked. That's what he liked. <laughs> so as far as educational background, you are a social worker. Were you clinical or macro? 
Um, well, that's a tough question to answer in retrospect, right? Like the easy answer is yes. Like I took the clinical track, um, but after being in the field for a number of years, I really wish I wasn't forced down either path and had more of a blended experience in my MSW education. I don't know if I've seen any programs that get it right because they tend to put you in either one or the other, right? And I come to think of it, a hybrid experience would definitely be more realistic to the field. Yeah, I think it'd be beneficial for every single social worker if there was a hybrid experience. So like real talk, when I have a chance to speak with social work students, I really uh, talk to them about demanding that their social work programs create a blended experience for them because it's their money and their time. Right. Yeah. right. Mm -hmm. So what are you doing currently? Like for work? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I work full time um, for a local nonprofit here in Richmond, Virginia, where I'm the director of family and community engagement. So I really oversee um, the department's direction and the organization's direction for family programs, community based programs like feeding, uh, immediate response, um, furniture banks, as well as our family engagement we really seek to promote. Um, healthy home and management and safe environments and caring environments for the students and families that we service in the east end of the city of Richmond. So I've been doing that. I'm in my second year um, in that role. But prior to that, I did 10 years of direct service with youth and young adults, um, primarily cross systems, multi systems involved youth. So teenagers who, you know, have a history of experiencing, but also perpetuating acts of community violence who get caught up in the juvenile legal system. So I did that for a number of years before stepping away from direct service to do what I'm doing now. So I think that's the first place where we overlap. So my, I started my career off actually working with justice-involved youth, adolescents, and I know that you love that particular group. Like I've seen oh, it on your social you. media. I did <laughs> not love. I did not oh. love that group. Um, oh. had different experiences. Part of it, I wasn't from the town that I was placed in. And just my, I don't know. I think the history between Lansing and Detroit, they were fan, fans of Detroit folk. And so when I said that's where I was from, they were just like, oh no, we don't bang with you. <laughs> Very territorial and tiny humans. Um, but no, like I, I love them with my whole entire heart. Like I've been at it for them, working alongside them since 2008, which is kind of hard to believe for anybody who knew me um prior to because I was a person that said they could not stand kids like I didn't want nothing to do um with kids um early on but now I truly could not imagine my life in this work without them so let's talk a little bit about social work right I think even if us recording this episode at the tail end of social work month let's talk about the whiteness of social work and what does that mean to you I mean I mean, essentially the foundation of professional social work, but it also means that it's problematic. Um, it means that there's a lot of work to be done on behalf of, well, not a work to be done for white social workers to really take a look at this system um, that has been created and the harm that we perpetuate as a profession. Um, just taking a look at just the deep seated um, and sordid history that white supremacy has and how it shows up in the work that we do, because professionalism is nothing but coded, right, for white supremacy and what's acceptable. And so unfortunately, I really just feel the social profession just being overwhelmingly white 
um, and centered around white experiences and prioritizing the lives of white folks um, is a harmful system. So for us, black social workers, do we have a role in addressing that? I mean, I've, I've done presentations where I've made it very clear the differences between like white supremacy and white privilege. And I made a call to action, but a lot of times I actually don't see myself in that work. Yeah, now this is the work of white people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, um, that dismantling piece, that is not our work. So I certainly don't, you know, I don't root for black folks getting engaged in the dismantling of these harmful systems because we have we have no we no benefit from them, nor and we also didn't create them. Social work to be included. So I think the role that black social workers have, we have multiple roles. Um, but it's really just showing up and taking up all the space possible in this profession, being loud and passionate, making demands, being radical and revolutionary. Like that is the role that I believe Black social workers have is to show up and take up all the space possible. Let's do a quick history lesson. How far back does this go when we're talking about the whiteness in social work? Professional social work? Professional social work. The conception, mm -hmm. right? So it goes back to the conception of professional social work. But when you take a look at the values, you know, that um, influence the work that social workers engage in, it has nothing to do with Western civilization and culture and everything to do with indigenous and West African and Islamic um, cultural beliefs and values. But professional social work came in with the Western kind of, you know, civilization framework of individualism and self-autonomy and independence and all these things that move away from folks being collectively engaged and connected to one another, really engaging in these acts of mutual aid where we care about the conditions of others because then it impacts us. And so the whiteness is from conception of professional social work. However, the whiteness also infiltrated the values of the social work profession. And right now we just kind of misguided. Like I really believe that where we are as a profession was not how we were intended to be when it was originally conceived. Tell us a little bit more about that. What direction do you think we should have been heading in? Oh, the direction where we, we don't profit, we don't build an entire um, profession that profits and capitalizes off of human pain and suffering. I truly don't think that was supposed to be the outcome, right? Like when folks started out in this work, but because we live in a market economy, pe people saw the value in people suffering and began to put price tags to it, billable units to it. And now we're just so uh, interlocked and walking alongside capitalism that I don't even know if we can break free from it. That was definitely about to be my next question. Like, how do we untangle ourselves from, from that market? I mean, I'm, I used to be incredibly idealistic, but now I'm mostly pragmatic and I still have hope. I don't think we can, um, not in the context of Western civilization not in the context of who has the power and decision-making over this field and the direction that it goes. The people who are in, in decision-making positions and power brokers don't really seem to have an interest in detangling from it, but to only grow it stronger. So I realize we're bouncing back and forth between like social work as a profession and also social work education. 
and I, I'm about to make it even more tangled here. <laughs> At what point did you realize there was this misinformation in social work education? Like for me, it actually didn't happen until after I graduated because the things that I was reading, you know, a lot of the practice modules, all of that, it was definitely written in a, in a white centered frame. And then upon graduation and being exposed to like the E. Franklin Frazier's and the Dorothy Heights of the world, it's like, oh, there's so much that I was left out. But what did that look like for you? I really didn't know how bad of an experience I had um, in my social work program and not like the social experience, right? I have great relationships, even came across some dope professors and faculty but I really didn't know the amount of trauma that I experienced and amounted when I was going through my program until I wanna say like, maybe like a year and a half post licensure. So I had been out of grad school for about five, six years when I was like, oh, wow. Like that was a tough experience that I had in school. But then I started kind of recalling these different moments that stood out for me. And it would be, you know, like students in class, particularly like the white girls in class who just had no concept of poverty. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and was just shocked that like those things existed. It would come down to like professors with their microaggressions um, who would just make these off-putting comments. But I think what really, you know, stands, well, stands out for me the most from my social work education is even my experience with some black faculty. Like those are the ones who broke my heart the most because they gave in to these narratives of white supremacy and were pushing them, but also using them to cause me great mental harm um, to really have me in this place of thinking that I did not belong mm -hmm. in social work school. One, I just want to acknowledge, you know, I'm definitely sorry to hear that that happened, but also realizing kind of where you are now and the, the power influence that you have I don't want to tie the two as like one cause the other, but I'm, I'm grateful that you do have the power and the voice that you have now, because, you know, folks are, I see dope black social worker everywhere. <laughs> just being able to, to have that voice and you're elevating things that if I were a grad student or when I was a grad student, like I would have loved to have somebody who looked like me say half the things that you say. Mm. I mean, I'm not gonna lie. One of my goals of whatever, you know, whatever this is that is being built was like, how could I just be the thing that I needed um, at the end of the day? And so that's why I do everything humanly possible um, to be able to reach back to black and brown social work students to try to be in some form, the thing that I needed. Cause I'm not a big talker. I'm a reflector, I'm a processor. I listen, I absorb, um, but now I'm in this space where people wanna hear and I don't take that lightly. And I really had to grow into the comfort of being able to stand in the space where people want to hear. But I also keep reflecting on um, some comments when I was going through clinical supervision that my supervisor at the time told me during group supervision. I never thought about myself this way, but it has stuck with me since 2011, uh, excuse me, 2000, yeah, no, 2013, um, when she said to me, it seems, Kim, you only speak when you have something to say. And I've never had anybody frame it for me like that. I had people who try to, you know, tell me you don't speak enough or you're quiet or you're shy or introverted, but like all these negative things. But when she said it to me that way, I understood the power of my voice. That's really just what I've leaned into lately. So thank you so much for 
offering your words around that. So as we we wrap up this this part about you know the whiteness in education, how have you seen this translate into practice when people go out into the field? I see it translated into policy, right? As well as the practice and just the way we engage in doing the work, the way that we police people's lives, um, the way that we shame people for the conditions that are out of their control. And so I really just see Western civilization's values and capitalism and white supremacy in social work causing great harm because then we hold people up to these standards that they don't even have any power in in creating whatever their conditions are. If it's the poverty, if it's the race, if it's the various affinity groups and identities. And so I see it in policy and practice, it's everywhere and it is harmful. I think one of the things that stands out to me is the way that we police how people respond to things that are out of, con out of their control, like you mentioned. Yeah. And I did a talk last week where I made it very clear that you should actually normalize distress as the logical outcome of oppression, right? Like mm. there's no reason why you should actually punish me because I'm already being marginalized. Like it, it doesn't make sense. And in many cases, I feel like the social work model upholds that as, well, you're down here. I'm gonna make things 10 times harder for you to get up mm. here. And for whatever reason, it just, it won't be moved. And I'm hoping yeah. that one day, you know, between the the you's, the eyes, and the others of the <laughs> world, we can we can figure out a way to like. I'm not gonna go down my full black liberation path, but we can <laughs> uproot uproot those who need to be uprooted. Yeah, there's a there's so much that's out of your control, my control, others' control, but yet we're forced to deal with the consequences of things that are out of our control. And how is that humane? I don't understand how that's humane or practical. And even as professionals, I think there's something to be said about not being an agent of oppression, right? Like yeah. working in these organizations, I make it very clear I work for state government and I call out the policies when I see it. And I'm like, mm, this isn't making things better for folks. And I don't know who is actually designing. Well, I, I know who's designing policies, <laughs> but uh, I don't know how they make it as far as they do. <laughs> I was going to say for five years, but I've been free for two years. Um, so that's that's some work right there. Uh, look at that's emancipation. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about solutions, right? What what has it meant for you in building a brand and being a voice? in transforming narratives when it comes to being a Black social worker? So I, I think the biggest thing is building community over a brand, right? Like I think the branding piece is, you know, one of the conditions of capitalism, white supremacy, it makes us think we need a brand. Well, we really just need community and the other things will follow. And so, um, if anything, it's just offered affirmation for like that little girl inside of me that you're not alone. You've never been alone. You just had to find your people. And so through this work of building community, community that's ultimately built the brand, I've just been able to find my people. 
which means we can collectively push in transforming narratives because one thing probably you know and I know, all these things that I'm currently saying, you're saying, other folks um, who are building community with us are saying are not new. But how do we just amount more power and more presence, you know, to push the narratives in more directions where it's heard? And segueing from that, how should we be talking about this? Because the, one of the things that stands out, obviously, to me is you just tell the truth, right? Like you just <laughs> literally say the things that everyone else is thinking. How do we put that in words for folks who may not feel as comfortable with that? I think that has a lot to do with the individual who's struggling to speak whatever truth is. That can be a personal challenge with being able to identify and speak your own truth, right? And so that could have your throat chakra blocked <laughs> to be able um, to really just stand in what the reality of things are with confidence and love and compassion and just speak truth. It's not easy. Um, and I think there's a lot of people who understand that it's not easy, but they're also fearful of what might happen if you do speak the truth. And I can only share that what I have found um, that has happened to me from speaking the truth is I've just found more cousins, right? Mm -hmm. Just found my people. So sometimes it's just moving in the fear, not letting the fear, you know, make us freeze and, and do nothing to get on the other side of what the reality is, which is you're not alone in whatever the truth is that you want to stand in. You know, I did not like I have no problem, you know, telling the truth in meetings because I feel like that's that's what I'm there for. I had a harder time doing it on social media, actually. Mm. It's like, do I want people to know how I really think? And it's like, well, <laughs> if people are following me, they probably should know how I really think. I don't want it to come across as a surprise. I mean, I do it everywhere. Like that, you know, people who have found me on the internet recently are just catching up to what people have known about me for years. Um, so you know, the person that's on social media or the website or on webinars or whatever it is, like that is the same Kim um, that shows up at work, that used to show up at the court when I was working in court, you know, that shows up in meetings. Um, not much really pivots to change. Like I gave up code switching, like cognitively, like I consciously gave up code switching probably like three and a half, four years ago. But I was like, this is not serving me. Um, and so I've just been, you know, swimming all in that for the last four years and just being my authentic self everywhere. And that's what I hear from people is what they seem to enjoy, which is a shock to me. Uh, but then at the same time, I also get folks that ask me, like, how are you able to, you know, build a community or do all these things? I was like, well, just being myself. I didn't force any of it. Um, so it's just, you know being yourself and not forcing things, but being your authentic self everywhere. When I was looking into more around dope black social worker, of course, one of the first things I did was go to the website and you, you have a quote that I found powerful and I want you to talk a little bit more about it. And that was, I am a revolutionary before I am a therapist and I am black mm -hmm. before I'm a social worker. What does this mean to you both personally and professionally if they're not different? Well, that's how I began my healing journey. Um, when I came to this recognition that I am a revolutionary before I'm a therapist and that I'm Black 
before I'm a social worker because I had had a horrible year in my career in 2018. I was really even going through professional identity crisis ended up um, going to therapy in 2019 because in 2018 I experienced the death of three young people that I was working with at the time. Two were fatally shot and one was struck by a car. So I was like at this low point in my career and really contemplating like, did I make a mistake by going into social work? Um, Because I had seen like, I didn't enjoy doing therapy full time. I also saw where focusing on just therapy uh, one-on-one with youth and families was failing them because you know all these system failures and all those other things that were happening and it really started to mess with my mind uh, to think like like I'm not a therapist but everybody keeps calling me that um I'm more than just a social worker so I had to start making sense of who I was um what my professional and personal identity was and it was very freeing for me when I just wrote one day, like, and just said it out loud, like, Kim, you are revolutionary before you're a therapist. It doesn't mean you're not a therapist and can't do therapy, but you're revolutionary first. You're also Black before you're a social worker, because my Black experience informs how I practice and do the work. And so by putting those two things together, I've just been able to fully stand in my truth of who I am, not just as a Black woman, but as a black woman, as also a social worker. I'm gonna need you to drop that devotional book at some point, <laughs> just full of affirmations. I mean, you could just write that over and over again, right? Yeah. <laughs> so for folks who are out there who want to understand, you know, how do they fit in this, this profession of social work, uh, young black professionals up and coming, what resources would you recommend for them to, to learn more whether that's about the whiteness of social work or how the history of social work has left out certain parts that we find valuable, where, where would you send folks? I would send folks, folks to a therapist. <laughs> <laughs> First possibly. Um, I would also send folks to begin in their own inner journey. Uh, but some more concrete stuff. I recently just picked up this book and I'm excited to dive into it. It's called The Righteous Self-Determination, The Black Social Work Movement in America by Patricia Reed Merritt. And um, I'm really excited just to get a better foundation of who we are as Black people in the social work profession through a historical kind of timeline. And so that's a concrete kind of um, thing that I would tell people is to dive in literature, which we don't have a lot of, but I think we also have to open our eyes to the history that we do know and our pioneers and ancestors that we do know who were engaged in social work but didn't have the title because of regulations, restrictions, racism, and white supremacy. Like nobody can tell me that Fred Hampton was not a social worker. Like nobody's gonna be able to convince me that Chairman Fred was not a social worker because he was through and through, right? So the examples are all around us. And I think it's important that we start to look at us differently and how we were reflected in the work because our programs are not gonna teach us these things. They're just not, Um, which is another reason you probably need to go to therapy. So I would definitely send some folks in that direction. But it's just also reframing the stories that we do know about our ancestors. You know, for the first time when, when you just mentioned that, I started thinking of like, literally my grandma, who's like, mm. 
like the first thing was kinship care, right? Like it, it had yeah. to be made, right? But grandma been taking care of all the kids forever. Yes. But now because we have a model and, you know, it's been evaluated, like, no, it was just everybody mm-hmm. was at grandma house. This work is not new. Like a life-changing experience I had was in grad school, getting a group of social workers went to Accra. We went to Ghana for about three weeks. And we were working with Black social workers and they were sharing with us, there's no formal like government sanctioned way of doing the work. But, you know, the communities and villages do the work that we call social work that the government does over here. You know what I mean? So like, this is not new. People have been organizing and caring for one another for generations and they still do. Like, I'm sure you know um, from your years of practice that when you work with the client, they know how to navigate the informal systems to get their needs met quicker than we can possibly navigate the formal systems to get their needs met quicker. So it's even as a social worker, recognizing there's an informal and informal system and you need to know about both to really, you know, help people navigate, progress and get their needs met in advance in whatever way they're trying to live their lives. So that brings us to another point of intersection. So I spent four weeks in Ghana um, on the public health side of things, but it was lit. I want to go back. Um, Me too. (laughs) I don't, I'm trying to remember how I paid for it before. I'm imagining it's all student loans. We're going to come back to student loans in a second too. (laughs) It's like, I I don't, like, I just want to go like one way it and just call it good. (laughs) Pack all them kids up in your family. You can't just go by yourself. You know. I know one way ticket. <laughs> nah. Nah. <laughs> nah, they they can they can roll. So <laughs> social work retirement 2030. Yes. How do we get there and how do we get there? Yeah, I'm out the game. Um, I have already committed in my mind, and I'm a Capricorn, so like once. Once I didn't said a thing, the thing is the thing. Um, so I have already committed in my mind that by 2030, I would have be out the game doing the work the way that I've been doing it for these last several years. And so I've shared this before across social media platforms, but I'll share it here. Like I have been proximate to human pain and suffering since 2008. By the time I reach 2030, that is too much. That is long enough. It's more than enough of being proximate to human pain and suffering. And I wanna do this work differently, but I also wanna make room for the next wave of leaders in social work. But we can't make room if we take up space, which is something that boomers and you know Gen X has a hard time conceptualizing is you can't make room for the new generation if you stay at your state job for 40 years, uh. right? So like, how can somebody else come up in the game? How are we supporting? the growth of an emerging group of leaders, but also how are we getting out the way? So I am committed to by 2030, creating a path where I you know, bring folks along with me, but I ultimately get out the way. So I'm out the game in 2030. Hey. I'll always be a social worker, but I'm out the game. <laughs> I'm gonna check in in around 2029. Check in, check in. Just, uh, <laughs> just make sure I'm not still where I'm at now. Or, or yeah, see. <laughs> <laughs> but do you recognize that there are some people who just want that good old government job and you know i had a, a boss said that they were just sticking around to put gravy on their grits i said why are you putting gravy on the grits 
<laughs> I don't even sound right. But anyway, but yeah, like, you know, we just got to move. I've had great mentors that have instilled in me that you have to have a five-year plan. If you're in the same place five years from now, it's a situation. Mm. Like you should be ready to transition into new phases every five years in your career. Doing a mental countdown in my head, but yeah. <laughs> so Kim, it's been great catching up. How do people keep up with you? You mentioned the courses that you have. You mind giving a good, a quick overview of those too, and just other ways to stay informed with your work? Yes, I mean the easiest way to keep up with me and my work, of course, is to follow me on Instagram. My handle is dopeblack underscore social worker. I'm also on that bird app known as Twitter. I'm not good at it though. I might think about stepping my game up on Twitter, but you folks can follow me there at dopeblack underscore S L W K R. Um, and also my website is dopeblacksocialworker.com. Right now, um, I have my webinar series is on pause because I have been doing a lot of engagements with universities and organizations these last couple of months. And so the public offerings have taken a break, but I'm hopeful to bring those back in the fall. Um, I have received wonderful feedback and affirmation around the moral injury webinar, as well as the social work on learning webinars. So really thinking about how to dig deeper into that work um, to just create whatever space is needed um, for social workers as they also move throughout their journeys with moral injury and unlearning. So those are some future opportunities. Uh, people can also, you know, I speak on a variety of topics. The press kit is available on the website if there's any interest in booking me for speaking, keynotes, all that jazz. I do that. Also got some merch. You oh yeah, I need my shirt. Yeah. I was Listen, come through. I restock. We restocking soon because the cousins been, you know, yeah. I'm appreciative. They've been buying stuff. Um, but also have the merch, the dope black social worker t-shirts, hoodies, crew necks, as well as the dope social work things, t-shirts, crew, uh, crew necks, hoodies, buttons, pins, stickers, all that jazz. Um, is on dopeblacksocialworker.com backslash shop. So I mean, there's a lot of different ways. Um, I'm, you know. I'm a first generation everything, college student, grad student, entrepreneur. So I'm figuring it all out, figuring it out together. And so I just continue to be thankful for people's patience and grace as they walk alongside me in this journey. I am the only person in one of my group chats that doesn't have the dope black social worker. Mark. Uh -oh. I'm a little sick. I'm a little sick. <laughs> they, um, they were showing. You got to take care of that. Yeah, yeah. So as soon as you you got it back, I'm I'm one of the first in line. <laughs> the only other thing that I wanted to mention, um, super tangential. I too love low budget lifetime thrillers. Ooh. Like that is my Sunday. Like throw it on. I'm not supposed to not be paying attention, but then I get something. Yeah, yeah. When I saw it, made post, no sense. When I saw you posted, <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's me. That's me right there. <laughs> It makes no sense. Like lifetime movies, they get straight to the point. They don't have no opening credits, no opening scene. You just press play and the movie starts. And then an hour and 30 minutes later, you're just like, what did I just watch? Yeah. That was amazing and horrible at the same time. At the same time. I love it. Nah, that's that's my jam. Every Sunday, <laughs> you catch me that or Snap. I watch Snap. There you snap. go. So, Kim, it's been great. 
definitely appreciate yeah. you hopping on the podcast. I mean, you drop words of wisdom. I mean, I'm a follower anyway. So I'm hoping that people who listen to this episode, one, support you, and two, also invest in the future of Black and Brown social workers. I mean, even if they can't attend a course, they can help pay for one. So there's, there's many it. ways to support the cause. Kim, appreciate you. Thank you so much for having me. So many things in one episode that you just want to unpack, right? So first things first, shout out to the homie Kim Young for hopping on the podcast. I mean, it. this conversation introduced so many things to me. It made so many things more clear when it comes to the work that I'm doing currently. And so when she talks about social work retirement, something I fully believe in, something I completely endorse, I'm looking forward to the the part of my career where I can say my work here is done and what I'm doing right now is just standing in the way. Let me get out of the way. And so in that same vein, I am saying with mixed feelings, partial excitement, but also partial like, oh my God, what am I doing? That this is actually going to be the last year of Equity Matters podcast as we know it currently. And so there may be some evolutions, there may be some things that change, some new series, but I have mapped out 2022. We are riding until November, but that is gonna be all she wrote for Equity Matters. Now, folks, bear with me. The quality of the content's not gonna change, but I do wanna start exploring what some other opportunities are out there. And I also want to rest. I mean, we we talk a lot about rest not being the reward. It's a part of the process. And one thing about being sick last month, I was forced to rest. And it was, I described earlier, just all the different feelings and different emotions that came with isolation. And part of that being, oh my God, I've got work that I need to do. And I'm like, bro, you could potentially die here why are you thinking about some report that you need to send in and and i'm sitting there literally talking to myself like you know this report needs to be submitted it's required by law and again myself said bruh the report will be fine you need to rest and so in many ways unlearning some of the behaviors and traits that i've you know had for so long i'm ready to really commit myself to seeing what renewal looks like, what restoration looks like. And with that, 2022, we are going to ramp up and wind down the podcast at the same time. Unfortunately, I had to cancel the Equity Matters Social Justice Academy Module 3 What I'm going to do is I'm planning to at some point record what that would have been and I'll make that available. We we can do that. I think just being in a place in a space that I'm in right now, I've got too many irons in the fire and I'm willing to admit that. And so I'm starting to really consider what's important. How can I take advantage of the time and space that I have right now? And so I'm, I'm mindful of what I take on. So with that, what did I take on? So one, I'm really excited to kick off a relationship with the Cummings Graduate Institute. And so for those who are not familiar, it is a professional program that offers a a Doctor of Behavioral Health degree 
and you'll actually get to hear from one of their directors later this year, Dr. Uh, Kiara Fanika Young, who is going to talk to us about trauma. But CGI and Equity Matters have come together to produce three trainings, um, two of which will be available starting in February. The first being around implicit bias and understanding and mitigating implicit bias. The second around community outreach and engagement. And the last one, which is really exciting because it's something that I've never touched on um, professionally. It's something that I've done the research on, I'm just familiar with based on the subject, but that's unmasking white supremacy and mental health. And so really deep stuff. And if you're interested in learning more, we're going to post the links to all of those trainings once they become available. Really excited for this new partnership. A lot of exciting things to come in the near future. But what else? Because there's there's another thing that I've been holding on to. So I'm starting to feel like Snoop, right? I believe that Snoop Dogg is living his life after you've beaten the main mission, right? Like he's, he's in all the commercials. He was on wrestling. He does commentary for... Uh, freaking hockey games because he's living his best life and that's what I aspire to do and so I am excited to announce that I am officially an adjunct professor at the Loyola University of Chicago I am actually developing a course around understanding understanding and mitigating poverty so really excited to be digging into that and it's a full circle moment for me because when I applied to graduate school there were two schools that I applied to the first being Michigan State and the second being Loyola and so to be able to come back now and say that I've done instruction at Michigan State and I've also going to be teaching at Loyola it is a it's a blessing and so I'm really excited the course will be completed in this October of this year and I hopefully will begin teaching in the spring of next year. So many, many exciting things for your boy. Please keep me uplifted. Don't have too many other updates right now. But what I will say, be sure to follow us on Instagram. That's at Equity Matters Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Equity Matters PC. Like us on Facebook. And of course, Equity Matters. Equity Matters.